Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 22. We began looking at Genesis 22 last week. Uh, We're going to continue to think about this story together. I'm going to read the chapter for us, but before we do that, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word, uh, your word which is truth. We thank you that you work by your word. Uh, to grow us in holiness, to conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus, to draw us near to you uh, through the work of your Holy Spirit, applying your word to our hearts. And we pray, Father, that you would do that even now, that you would move in us by your Spirit uh, to enlighten our minds, uh, to renew our wills, and to give us faith in Jesus. Help us to trust in him, to receive him, to rest upon him. Father, we pray that you would use your word by your spirit to these ends. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. He said, behold, the wood and the fire, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. 
These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Ma'akah. How you respond when the heat is turned up demonstrates what has first place in your heart. We can put on a good show most of the time. We can even believe it ourselves. But then trouble comes, and suddenly whatever is really ruling our heart makes itself known. Whatever we defend or fight for or strive to get, whine about if we lose, that is what is ruling our hearts. We don't see it all the time because we have time to think things through. And we act a certain way because we, we know what's right and we know what is expected of us. Uh, but C.S. Lewis has this great illustration in Mere Christianity. Uh, he says, often when we sulk or snap or sneer, he says, the excuse that immediately springs to my mind is that the provocation was so sudden and unexpected. I was caught off my guard. I had no time to collect myself. Now, that may be an extenuating circumstance, he goes on. As regards those particular acts, they would obviously be worse if they had been deliberate or premeditated. On the other hand, surely what a man does when he is taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of a man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. If there are rats in a cellar, you are most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation does not make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I am. The rats are always there in the cellar. But if you go in shouting and noisily, they will have taken cover before you switch on the light. Now, what Lewis says about suddenness can just as easily be said about any kind of trial or hardship. The hardship doesn't create the rats. It only exposes them. How you respond when the heat is turned up shows what has first place in your heart. But what do we do about that? Last week, we talked about this story, sometimes called the binding of Isaac, and we discussed the reality that how you respond when the heat is turned up shows what has first place in your heart. Abraham was a man of faith, and he walked by faith, obeying God, uh, even here, whatever the circumstances, whatever the consequences. And when his faith was tested, it stood the test. He put God first, no matter what. But there is more to the story, and we need to talk about that this week. Uh, really, last week's sermon uh, was incomplete without this week's. Uh, last week, again, we saw that how you respond when the heat is turned up demonstrates what is first place in your heart. But this week, what we want to see is for God to have first place in our hearts, we must believe his promises, know his love, and rest in the righteousness of Jesus. Now, before we look at that, let me remind you of the story. And let's, let's begin at the beginning. Uh, not the beginning, but pretty close. In Genesis 12, God called Abraham to leave his home and go to a land which God would show him. And Abraham, from that point on, became a pilgrim looking for the promised land. He sojourned in the land of Canaan. And God gave him three big promises uh, the promise of land, that Abraham and his descendants would take possession of the promised land. The promise of seed or descendants, that they would be as many as the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore. And the promise of blessing to the nations, that all nations would be blessed through Abraham and his seed. 
Abraham dwelt in the land for decades following those promises, but God said the land would be possessed only by his descendants, not him. And Abraham waited for decades for a child. And despite a foolhardy attempt at helping God along and a number of threats along the way, 25 years in, the child came. Isaac was the child of promise. He was the seed from whom Abraham would become a great nation. Uh, He was the seed whose descendants would inherit the land. He was the seed through whom the nations would be blessed. Everything depended upon Isaac. But no sooner is Isaac born than God gives this command in Genesis 22:2. God says, "Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you." It's a bit outrageous. And we talked about it last week. And if you, if you weren't here, you may want to go listen to that sermon. And if you have questions about it, feel free to let me know. But maybe what is more outrageous even than the command is that Abraham obeyed. He gets up early, he saddles his donkey, he gathers his servants, he cuts his wood, he gets up and he goes. He goes to the mountain God would show him. He goes to offer his son. He gets to the mountain. He leaves behind his servants. He builds an altar. He lays out the wood. He binds his son. He lays him on the altar. He reaches out his hand. He takes the knife. And at the last possible minute, God calls to him, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on the boy. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. God then provides a substitute, a ram, And confirms his promises to Abraham in verses 16 to 18. And and God reiterates his promises of descendants and of land, possessing the gates of their enemies, he says, uh, and blessing to the nations. Of course, God now calls us, uh, believers, children of Abraham, to endure uh, trials, knowing that every trial is a test of our faith. Uh, This is what God says in the New Testament. Uh, 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Or 1 Peter 1 says, At this time you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is the man, James goes on to say, who remains steadfast under trial, like Abraham. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And so so like Abraham, our faith is tested by trials, and we too are called to stand firm to put God first by by obeying him, whatever the cost. And the question is, how do we do that? What does that look like? And we'll look at three things this morning. Believe God's promises, know God's love, and rest in the righteousness of Christ. First, believe God's promises. It's, It's hard to do hard things, but it's even more hard, even more difficult when you are afraid. You know, fear of what might happen holds us back in life uh, in general. And how, how much more is that true when God calls us to follow him even when it is painful? 
uh, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it means giving up what we love most. Now, uh, someone came up to me last week and, and asked a great question, and it was something like, well, what, what do you mean by trials? And aren't there times when we, when we should run away from difficulty? And it, it's a good question. And let me just say something as, as clearly as possible, if this was going through your mind last week, uh, if you are facing, of course, genuine uh, abuse, you should get out of that situation if you can. When I'm talking about trials, that's, that's not exactly what I mean, though those, those are a trial. Uh, of course, we know in the real world that's not always possible. Uh, you can't always escape. And while we shouldn't leave every difficult situation, we should do what we can to get out of abusive situations. Uh, that, that line is difficult to navigate, perhaps, and if you're in any way unsure, you should talk to someone who can help you, uh, including one of the elders of this church. And so what do I mean then by trial and, and not running? Uh, by trial, I, I really just mean any difficulty in life, especially anything that challenges your faith. And by not running or, or not attacking or not medicating, I, I mean facing that trial, dealing with the circumstances in a way that is not merely self-protective, but prioritizes love for God and neighbor. When difficult things happen, my sole question should not be, how do I make this stop? Uh, but how can I love God and neighbor in this? How can I uh, persevere by faith in the midst of this trial? And that may include literally running, going to the proper authorities, finding physical safety for you or others when possible, but that's not all it means. Uh, on at least one occasion, Jesus escaped the crowds who wanted to kill him, throw him off a cliff. Uh, and Paul went so far as to climb out a window to avoid those who wanted to put him to death. But neither did that because their ultimate end was self-protection. Uh, they each had a mission from God to love God and neighbor. And to do that meant not giving in to those who sought to oppress and oppose them. So how do we face the hard things in life? How do we move forward in obedience to God, even when it means facing difficulties in the moment? Well, this brings us to a, what is really an odd statement in verse 5. I told you I'd get back to it last week, and uh, we're going to get back to it. Verse 5, Abraham had set out uh, with his son Isaac and two young men. I'm not exactly sure why they were there, but they were there. And in verse 5, after seeing the mountain, Abraham says this. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham says, I and the boy will go over and worship and come again, meaning we will both come back to you. Why did Abraham say this? Uh, some suggest that Abraham was confused, right? That the weight of the situation had muddled his mind. Uh, Abraham knew he was about to sacrifice Isaac so that his son would not be coming back. But he wasn't thinking clearly, some say. Others think that Abraham was just outright lying. Uh, he, he had to get rid of these young men somehow or they might stop him from going through with this sacrifice. So he just lies. It seems, at least, like Abraham is lying he knows he's going to offer up Isaac, and yet he says Isaac will return. And maybe he'll figure out how to explain himself after the fact, but for now he just, he just needs to get to the, to the mountain. But of course, there's another possibility. Uh, in fact, the book of Hebrews tells us what Abraham was thinking. We don't have to guess. Hebrews eleven seventeen 17 to 19 says this, By faith, Abraham... 
when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, and this is what Abraham thought, this is what he was thinking about. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. See, we need to remember that uh, God's covenant is the real issue here, as the book of Hebrews pointed out. Uh, He who received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. God had just had Abraham send Ishmael away, you may remember. Now Isaac is his only son. Can God fulfill his promises if Abraham puts Isaac to death? Isaac is the child of promise. Abraham's descendants living in the land and blessing the nations, they depend upon this one child. Everything depends upon Isaac. How can God fulfill his promise if Abraham puts Isaac to death? Well, Abraham reasoned that God can raise the dead. You see, the God who had brought life out of death in Sarah's womb and Abraham's aged body could surely bring life out of death again. What allowed Abraham to face this trial was faith in the promises of God. He could lose his life because he knew in losing his life for God, he would find it. He could give up everything because he knows that God is going to be faithful no matter what. The the promise for us is this, and I'll I'll put it in the words of the the missionary and the martyr Jim Elliott, right? Who said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Or in the words, uh, more importantly, of Jesus in Matthew 6, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Uh, Here's what Abraham learned, or better, what he proved, that not only does death not put an end to God's promises, the promises come only through death followed by resurrection. Abraham laid Isaac on the altar and received him back, figuratively speaking, Hebrews says, from the dead. The promises come only through death, followed by resurrection. That's the way the gospel works. When Jesus went to the cross, the people thought he had been abandoned by God, and in a sense, he had for us and for our sin. And yet Jesus was not abandoned to the grave. Having paid the penalty for sin on the cross, the Father raised him from the dead. Through death came life. First, Jesus died, and then he rose. You might say, but, but couldn't God have just spared Jesus from all that suffering and death and just raised him to life? Couldn't he have just given him resurrection life outright? And the answer is, well, yes, he could have if he wanted to leave us in our sin. Because of sin, the path to life is through death. The penalty for sin is death, and that penalty must be paid before the reward of life can be had. And so Abraham offered Isaac to receive him back again, which points us forward to the cross where Jesus was offered up and then rose again on the third day. If you would have life in Jesus, you too, scriptures say, must die to self. That that is the way the Christian life moves forward. Jesus says if anyone would save his life, he will lose it. But whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake, he will find it. Rather than spending our lives trying to escape death and hardship and trouble, we must face them in the hope of the resurrection. 
The way to face death is in the hope of the resurrection. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. He faced death in the hope of resurrection. Now, how does this hope of resurrection, how does that shape us? Uh, that is, if our hope is in the resurrection, how does that change us right now in the moment? Now, first, the resurrection means that believers have been raised from the dead. As Jesus rose from the dead to new life, so believers united to Christ by his spirit have been given new life. And we can walk in that new life right now. Romans 6, 4 says, We were buried, therefore, with Jesus by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead for the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Romans 6.11, Paul goes on to say, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. See, our hope is in the resurrection. Christ has already been raised, and you have been raised with him if you are a believer in Jesus. And so we walk in newness of life. Now, we face hard things, ready to die to self, ready to find life in Christ now by his Spirit. Through death, we find life in Christ. Through death to sin, we find life in Christ. Through death to self, we find life in Christ. And, but there's more. Christ has risen from the dead, and we too will rise from the dead on the last day. We have been raised spiritually, but we will be raised physically on the last day. Romans 8.11 says, If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you... He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Or 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. There is a new life for us. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, but then at his coming those who belong to Christ. See, the hope of the resurrection meets us in our fears. Maybe God is calling you to something right now, some obedience to his word, and you are afraid. You think, I don't know what will happen if I do this. I may experience hardship or pain or even death, but God is faithful. We have the hope of the resurrection, the life of Christ in my soul now, and the life of Christ in my body on the last day. Through death comes life. That is true now as we die to ourselves and find life in Jesus and that is true eternally, as death gives way to resurrection on the last day. And yet there's more. Uh, how you respond when the heat is turned up, it demonstrates what is first place in your heart. But for God to have first place, you must believe his promises, especially his promise of the resurrection. That is what will shape our Christian life. But second, you need to know God's love. What stops us from being sold out for Jesus is, is fear of what might happen if. Uh, and the love we have for the things of this world. That love isn't bad necessarily, but often it becomes inordinate, which is to say it gets out of place. It cuts in line in front of the love of God. Only when we know the extent of our Father's love will the love of this world be put in its proper place. So Isaac, uh, when Isaac asked his father, Abraham, verse 7, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? 
Abraham's answer seems elusive. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. What does that mean? And does it mean that God will provide a lamb at some point in the future, or that God had provided a lamb, you, Isaac, my son? Uh, it's hard to know, uh, though if Abraham thought that, God was, uh, that, that he was going to offer up Isaac and that God would raise him from the dead, it seems most likely Abraham was speaking about Isaac himself when he said that, as the lamb that God had provided. As the story moves on, we learn better, though. Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife, and the angel of the Lord called out, Don't do it! Abraham's faith, his fear of the Lord, was shown by his actions. And Abraham lifts up his eyes once more and sees a ram. God had provided the lamb, a male sheep. Abraham took the ram and offered it up instead of Isaac. And this is where we see Jesus so clearly in this passage. As, as Abraham offered up his beloved son Isaac, but God provided a substitute, a ram, so God the Father provides the son as a sacrifice for sin, except instead of there being a substitute for the son, the son is the substitute for all of us. Jesus is the Lamb of God, come to take away the sin of the world. And in the cross, in Jesus' substitution for sinners, Jesus shows us unequivocally the love of God for sinners. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but will have eternal life. Romans eight thirty two: God did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. See, the Father shows his love in that he gave that which was most precious to him, the Son. Of course, like Isaac, Jesus went to the cross willingly. Jesus, in humility, counted others more significant than himself and looked not to his own interests but to ours. All of which means in the mystery of God's love, we can put God first because he first put us first in the cross. God's love in the cross is not, it's not a guilt trip, right? God loves you so much, you better love him back. Rather, God's love can warm your heart and assuage your fears. Your father loves you this much. He gave his only son. Meditate on the greatness of his love until it warms your heart. And then realize, as Paul says in Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God loves us this much, that he would give us his son, will he be stingy from here on out? Will he hold anything back that is necessary for our salvation? No. He knows what you need. He, he knows what he said. You can obey God now, knowing that his commands are for your good and trusting in his fatherly love. Do you know the love of the Father shown in the cross of the Son? Do you realize that God's love is there shown for sinners, sinners like you and me? Jesus, the righteous one, died in the place of sinners, sinners like you and me. And no matter what your sin, no matter how bad, no matter, no matter how often, no matter how long you have been living in some sin, Jesus came to stand in the place of sinners, to be our substitute, to die in our place. He offered up his life up to death, so we do not have to face the wrath of the Father on the last day. That is God's love for sinners. Believe God's promise of resurrection. Know God's love in the cross, and finally rest in Christ's righteousness. This story ends, as we have seen, not, with, not only with God providing a substitute for Isaac, but with God then reaffirming his promises to Abraham. 
his promise of, of land and seed and blessing. Uh, but there's something odd in these verses. Twice God says in verse 16 and 18, because you have done this and because you have obeyed my voice. And what's interesting here is God has already made these promises earlier in the book of Genesis. And God has already sworn to his own harm in Genesis 15 that these things would come to pass. So how could it be that God promised these things unequivocally and now says they will happen because of what Abraham has done? I have to say, as I read through the commentaries, I wasn't really comfortable with anybody's explanation, uh, some of which I didn't even understand. That's probably my fault, not theirs. Uh, It appeared, though, that they were just trying to make something up to explain away this tension in God's promises. But I think the best explanation, then, is this, that God's promises here are, are both unconditional and conditional. Right? God, when God swears in Genesis 15 that he will do what he has promised to his own harm, that doesn't mean that the promises are not in any way conditional. God's covenant partners have to keep the covenant. The problem, of course, is that they don't. We don't. Abraham does here. It's kind of a first for him. But his descendants frequently break his covenant to the point that Israel is cast out of the land. They lose their inheritance because they are unfaithful. And God will bring about his promises, but they are also at the same time conditioned on Israel's keeping the covenant. And so then the question is, how is this dilemma to be solved? Well, it's rather simple and elegant in the end, isn't it? God becomes man. God comes in the person of Jesus, and God takes on the human side of the covenant as well. Jesus obeys the Father perfectly. He keeps covenant with the Father. He obeys the Father's commands. He does the Father's will. This means however bad we fail, the promises are secure, not because we obeyed, but because Jesus obeyed in our place as the child of Abraham. By doing the Father's will, Jesus does what we could not do. By dying on the cross for sin, Jesus shows the Father's love for us and puts us before his own good. By rising from the dead, Jesus demonstrates that God's promises are sure and that death itself will not get in the way. Do you struggle to put God first? When the heat is turned up, do your loyalties lie with your own comfort and ease? Or are you willing to obey the Father, even in difficulty, whatever may come? Get to know Jesus, the righteous one who obeyed God perfectly and so truly merited all the promises of God. Get to know the love of the Father that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, Paul says, will also with him graciously give us all things. Rest in that providing love. Get to know this resurrection hope that because Christ is risen, we are given resurrection life now by the Spirit and we will rise again on the last day. Then you will be ready more and more as you grow in faith in these things to face trials, putting God first, obeying whatever the cost. As you rest in God's promises, believe in, believe in those promises, rest in his grace, know his love, and trust in the righteousness of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that Isaac, the son of Abraham, points us forward to Jesus, the Son of God. We pray that you would help us to rest in Jesus, to rest in his righteousness, to to know your love displayed in the cross, 
and to believe your promises that as Jesus rose from the dead, so we will rise on the last day. Increase our hope in these things and help us to live in light of that hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.